Thank you, and once again, welcome to the Theological Seminar of the Air, a broadcast dedicated to the teaching of the doctrinal content of the Old and New Testament in a theological context. That is, what God has revealed about himself, according to his own book, in a doctrinal manner. We have spent weeks and weeks and months now studying the doctrines of theology and Christology and pneumatology. At present, we are studying anthropology, the doctrinal teaching of the Bible, where it crosses the uh, hallucinations and conjectures of the faculty members of the state universities. Eighty percent of the faculty members of any state university are what we call evolutionists. Most of them believe in the theory of evolution as a fact, although some accept it as a conjecture. On our previous broadcast, we pointed out the uh, fantasy of this uh, uh, hallucination or delusion, and we spent considerable time talking about the fruit of this false teaching, especially where it affects, affects murder, rape, fornication, adultery, torture, and war. We also call to your attention the fact that all communists are evolutionists, although all evolutionists are not communists. We pointed out the state religion of China and Russia is evolution. There is no such thing as a communist who is not an evolutionist. They all believe in the superior of man as man's own end, as man's God, with the God of man taking care of man as his own savior. We call them the do-gooders. All socialists and communists are little self-righteous good-doers, uh, uh, good-doers who are trying to do good to atone for their own personal sins. After all, they fall into praise Nature and Mayo say tongue and Lenin and Marx and Stalin and Engels and Trotsky was no different from the fall of nature in Adam when he fell. So these little do-gooders set themselves up as great leaders or liberators of mankind to atone for their own godless blasphemies and their own dirty lives. You'll notice these people are always worried about the people in the ghetto and minority groups and are class conscious of their roots. Have you ever noticed how those people are the last to be concerned about the individual sins of sinners? Have you ever noticed that? There wasn't one good white man on the TV program Roots, and there wasn't one bad black man. You know what that's called? That's called racism. That's extreme ethnic fanaticism, which borders on bigotry. But you don't hear much said about those things. Now, we point this out because these little do-gooders who are always trying to help folks are sinners who have rejected what the Bible says about them because they're blasting the Holy Spirit in their own lives. So a communist basically is nothing but a fallen sinner in Adam's image who's trying to atone for his sin by acting like a jackass. And these people believe in evolution because they're deceived and deluded and want to place their faith in themselves. So they pretend they've come from Puddle to Paradise, the modern pilgrim's progress, uh, monkey to man, or as Professor Shattuck has so aptly put it, alibi, lullaby, bye-bye. Now today we list a few famous scientists who do not accept the theory of evolution. The modern contemporary propaganda put out by the liars in state universities is to the effect that you cannot be scientific without believing in evolution or that you cannot be a qualified scientist without, and believe in evolution. We find the apostate fundamental Christian schools putting out the same line of garbage in relation to the authorized version. These fanatical crackpots in our fundamental schools will say, you cannot be, so they'll limit, you cannot, you cannot be an educated Christian and believe the King James Bible is the word of God. They're liars. 
the fundamentalist and the modern apostate fundamental school says you can't be the King James Bible's infallible and be an educated man. They're liars. There are a number of educated people who be the King James Bible's infallible word of God. They're simply lying. And by the same token, the unsaved professors at your state university will lie and say you can't be a qualified scientist and without believing the theory of evolution. They're liars. Proof number one. Dr. Albert Fleischmann, professor of zoology at the University of Erlangen in Germany, quote, The Darwinian theory of evolution has not a single fact to confirm it in the realm of nature. It is not the result of scientific research, but purely the product of the imagination. Number two, Sir John Ambrose Fleming, president of the Victoria Institute of London. He published a whole book against evolution called Evolution or Creation. Douglas DeWire, naturalist of England, wrote a book called Difficulties of Evolutionary Theory, which is a complete and effective argument against evolution. Dr. Clark Whistler, curator-in-chief of the anthropological section of the American Museum of Natural History, says, quote, As far as science is discovered, there always was a man, some not so developed, but still human beings in all their functions, much as we are today, Man came out of a blue sky as far as we've been able to delve back. Dr. Austin Clark, FRGS, the American Geophysical Union, and oceanographer says, quote, the great groups of animal life do not merge into one another. They are and have been fixed from the beginning. Dr. Derek Mother says, quote, we do not hesitate to confess that in place of demonstrable links between man and other animals, we possess nothing more than some fossils so fragmentary that they are susceptible of being interpreted as something else. Professor L.T. Moore of Cincinnati University says, quote, unfortunate for Darwin's future reputation, every one of his arguments is contradicted by fact. Now, who were these incredible asses who were telling you that a man had to believe in evolution or he wasn't scientific? Who were they, huh? Douglas DeWar in his book, Difficulties in the Theory of Evolution, writes, quote, The breeder, no matter on what plant or animal he experiments, after he has effected a number of minor changes in any given direction, he is suddenly brought to a standstill. In a comparatively short time, he reaches the stage at which he can accomplish no more. No matter how much he tries, this fact is fatal to the theory of evolution. Professor A.C. Seward of Cambridge University writes, quote, A student who takes an impartial retrospect soon discovers that the fossil record raises more problems than it solves. Now, what about that? The proofs of evolution from oceanography, botany, comparative anatomy, vestigial organs, embryology, geology, and paleontology dissolve under true scientific investigation. Evolution at its best is a system or a fabric or hypothesis, a hypothesis of a deluded imagination, and much of it is pure legendary fiction. It is much more scientific to accept the Bible and believe what the only true scientific textbook proves, that man and everything were created perfect and each was created as it is now. God's creation order was after his kind, Genesis 1.24, to the living creatures. In verse 21, the command of the plant world was after their kind. This rule has been obeyed. The scientific man is the man who takes his stand with God and true science against the error of this venomous 
hallucination that amounts to a satanic delusion. For decades, men have been searching for links in the evolutionary scale between man and the low anthropoids. Recent discoveries have only confused the picture. The age of the universe is generally given as about six billion years, but as only compared to recently, the man appeared in the planet, according to these guessers. One often hears it said that according to modern evolutionary ideas, man did not descend from an ape or a monkey, but from an unknown species related to some other primate. But as Professor George Gaither Simpson has said, quote, Apologists go on to state or imply that man is not really descended from an ape or monkey. In fact, the common ancestor would certainly be called an ape or a monkey in popular speech by anybody who saw it. Since the terms ape and monkey are defined by popular usage, man's ancestors were apes or monkeys if you're an evolutionist. Two facts which have emerged from anthropological studies deserve our particular attention. The first is that modern types of man have been discovered which were living at the same time as man's supposed ancestors. The earliest fossils, of which there is absolutely no doubt, as of their being Homo sapiens, had a cranial capacity equal to or greater than that of much many modern European men. The second fact is that man is much more than an animal by virtue of his spiritual, mental, and physical capacities. Among the earliest anthropological findings of early man was the so-called Neanderthal man, an old Stone Age race. But it is now well recognized that Neanderthal man had brains larger than those of modern men, and they walked in the upright position as we do today. The cranial capacity of Neanderthal man was about 1,600 cc, compared with 14 cc of the modern man. The supposed ancestor of the Caucasian race is known as Cro-Magnon man. In regard to these remains, Boulet and Valois state, quote, skeletons presented all the features of modern man. So much so indeed that their great antiquity was not acknowledged by most anthropologists who could not bring themselves to abandon their preconceived notions and to throw so far back into the past the physical type of Homo sapiens. The Swanson skull is of special significance because it is unquestionably that of a man of modern type. Yet it has been dated as far back as the second interglacial period. Sir Wilford Legros Clark has stated, quote, Lastly, the evidence of the Swanson skull is of great importance because its antiquity is so well attested by a stratigraphical found and archaeological evidence. It quite probably dates from the Mindel Reese second interglacial period. During recent years, however, the center of interest has shifted to Africa. I mean, the new Athenians who only want to hear or tell something new are always trying to escape their old lies by inventing new ones in the hopes that you'll believe the new one since you have abandoned the old one. We call this circular reasoning the logic-type compartment of the insane asylum, which means the reason why these fellows keep telling you, oh, no, we don't believe that anymore, is because it proved to be a lie. But now they say we found this, and then they swear by the new thing they found as though it was the truth, although it'll be proved to be a lie in less than ten years. That is, they are confirmed, chronicle, professional, pathological liars. During recent years, the center of attention has shifted to Africa. Naturally, it would, since you're trying to integrate the race and try to prove it's the oldest. Therefore, if you go back to the bush, you're progressing. <laughs> well, L.S.B. Leakey of the National Museum, Nairobi, Kenya, had been excavating at Oduvai and Penangihara. He unearthed skeleton remains of three types, which he classified as Homo habilis, Australopithecus, Zinjanthropus, 
boy's eye at what seemed to be a primitive ancestor of Homo erectus. Dr. Lee Leakey stated, quote, his findings should serve as a deterrent to the many who would like to drop evolutionary sequences based on insufficient numbers of specimens. For example, every evolutionary sequence that has been brought up so far taught at your college was based on less than ten specimens. He has explained that it seems to be more likely that uh, Homo habilis and Homo erectus, as well as some of the Australopithecus, were all evolving along their own distinct lines. This would mean that their shared ancestor must be sought in the more remote past, and that then when examples of the parent stock are found, they will not resemble any one of the three subsequent branches. Dr. Leakey has previously stated that uh, Zinganthropus was an Australopithecan, a non-human vegetarian of low intelligence, and not a toolmaker. Whatever the final judgment may be in regard to these discoveries, it would seem reasonable to conclude that none of them could be regarded as the ancestor of man. It is truly amazing so much attention should be given to the press to these findings, and the importance of which has been grossly exaggerated. There seems to be no end to the list. As Dr. Arthur Custance of the Defense Research Board of Canada's remark, quote, People are more willing to make forthright, artificial statements about a few remains that have been buried for thousands of years than they are about similar bones buried yesterday. The reason why is unsaved educated people are very anxious to get rid of the biblical account of the fall so they can get rid of the biblical account of the crucifixion and resurrection. The unsaved educated man today is desperate to get rid of the biblical account so he will sell his soul to find one thing that could be used as a missing link to prove the lie. In a recent issue of Life, some excellent illustrations appear to the Bindaboo natives of Australia. These were described as the most primitive people on earth still living in the Stone Age. Professor Davenport, University of Pennsylvania, has stated that in the fastness of Highland New Guinea, some of the last truly Stone Age societies still survive. In 1911, a Stone Age man issue was discovered in California. His story has been written by Theodore Kroeber. The Eskimos are near to the Paleolithic man and physical tools, so forth and so on. It has often been suggested the size of the brain is an index to the individual's uh, age. Dr. Ashley Montague, anthropologist and social biologist, has stated that the two largest skulls ever known with a capacity of 2,800 cc's belong to a U.S. senator and an idiot. Now, what does that mean? It is well recognized that fossil remains are of little value unless the geological formation of the site where the relics have been located has been turned stratigraphically. Dr. Arthur's customs has pointed out the origin of Homo sapiens is still a profound mystery. <clears throat> Professor Leslie White of the University of Michigan has pointed out in The Descent of Man, Charles Darwin argued that man is not a unique animal and that his mind differed from those of other animals merely in degree. Dr. White, however, stated, quote, this question is still open, and reputable scientists are laid on both sides. But I believe there is enough evidence to close the question once and for all to establish the uniqueness of man beyond all doubt, which means, of course, that I place myself among those who believe that man is a unique animal. As Professor George Gaylord Simpson has explained, quote, the most crucial single and anatomical point is acquisition of upright posture and strictly bipedal locomotion. Man alone can read and write, man alone can converse in words, and he alone in the animal kingdom is aware of the history of his source, which the animals are not. Man alone is able to sing in four-part harmony, he's the only one that can kindle fires, 
He can only one that can prepare his own uh, clothes and prepare his own food. Man alone wears clothes. Man alone has a sense of humor that gives rise to laughter. Man alone is found everywhere on the earth in response to divine command, where animals, on the other hand, have limited habitats, and except in the company of men, cannot adjust to every land and climate. Man alone is able to invent and elaborate tools and to use tools and make tools. Professor Ernst Mayer has pointed out there is a widespread use of primitive tools in the animal kingdom, but he admitted that Bartholomew and Bud Seller write in saying, quote, Man is the only animal that is continually, continually is to depend on tools for survival. Animals have no means of self-improvement. Man is unique in his origin and his destiny. His supreme distinction, however, lies the priceless gift of speech by means of which he is able to communicate abstract ideas to his fellow man. Animals and birds have vocal organs, but they cannot speak about abstract matters. The cries of animals and birds are emotional and not conceptual. They are only exclamations. Now, Professor Henry Morris has shown that the theory of evolution also contradicts two universally accepted laws of thermodynamics. The first of these laws states that energy can be transformed in various ways, but that it can neither be created nor destroyed. As Professor A.R. Ubelhold of the University of London has explained, explained for, quote, the first law of thermodynamics is merely another name for the law of conservation of energy. But as Dr. Morris has pointed out, the evolutionary hypothesis of increasing organization, increasing integration and development is in reality a form of creation, and this is contrary to the first law of thermodynamics. The second law of thermodynamics states that in all energy transformations, there is a tendency for some of the energy to be transferred into non-reversible heat energy. This loss of energy is referred to as entropy, and the entropy of a closed system always tends to increase. This phenomenon is well recognized everywhere in life, from broken down automobiles to clocks running down. As A.G. Tilney has said, all things left to themselves tend to go bad, sour, rusty, moldy, rotten, disorderly, or dead. Everything runs down, breaks down, or wears out, and deteriorates. Therefore, the very first basic idea of evolution is the fantastic imagination of a pagan dream. That is, when, when faced with demonstrable observable facts, we recognize that a man has to be basically mentally unbalanced to believe in evolution. All things left to themselves tend to go bad, sour, rusty, dirty, moldy, rotten, disorderly, dead, Everything you know or see from the time you're born to the time you die runs down, breaks down, wears out, and deteriorates. Therefore, we may say conclusively from an objective, empirical, scientific point of view, without fear of contradiction of any communist or atheist in the world, nor do we have to consider his opinion as valid, regardless of his educational background, that basically a man who rejects the entire observable, demonstrable, empirical facts of life observable to be anybody through the five senses, is mentally unbalanced. He has a mental problem. That is, the whole approach to evolution is a sick approach, which can only be taken by a man who rejects what he sees, hears, feels, tastes, and touches, and observes. You can't be an evolutionist without denying your rational powers. If you believe things are gradually getting better, improving, and not rotting, and rusty, getting rusty, and moldy, and wearing out, and running down, 
actually, from a scientific empirical viewpoint, standpoint of demonstrable, observable fact, you're about two steps removed from an insane asylum. Do you know that? Even the Earth is wearing out. And the sun is wearing out. But the Disneyland theory of evolution contradicts the second law of thermodynamics. Also, for evolution involved the concept of continually building up from the simplest to the more complex forms instead of gradually breaking down. It may be argued about the second law of thermodynamics is not violated by the doctrine of evolution because no living organism is a closed system. But it is accepted that evolution has been a continuous process of development from cosmic dust to man before there were any living organisms. And in the same way, entropy must have been built into the universe at its inception. Entropy is not a local phenomena. It embraces the boundaries of space. It is obvious, therefore, that the second law of thermodynamics would apply to all living things as well, because evolution and entropy are both regarded as being of universal application. Otherwise, we would have to assume some vitalistic factor which would differentiate the elements of living things from the same elements in animate matter. Evolution involves a continual increase of order, organization, size, and complexity. Entropy involves a continual decrease of these factors. They cannot both be right, and all the facts demonstrable and observable by the empirical scientific method show the evolutionist is living in fantasy land. Robert Bradford of the University of Chicago has reported there are many indications that Iran was the site of the earliest village farming communities in the way of life, and this development took place some 10,000 years ago. Professor Joseph Greenberg of Columbia estimates approximately 8,000 years. Professor Elanning University of Columbia suggests 9,000 years. The Scientific American suggests 9,500 years for pre-Neolithic village in Syria. Dr. M.J. Aiken gave 3,000 B.C. Professor Richard McNeish of the University of Alberta says the oldest thing he can find in this world is about 6,700 B.C., around uh, Mexico. But all these dates are tentative. Nevertheless, these statements reflect the general impression that, according to archaeology, civilized man has not lived on this earth for more than 10,000 years at a maximum. And Time magazine has stated there have only been 5,560 years of recorded history. It would be quite reasonable, therefore, to assume that the first appearance of civilized man was less than 10,000 years ago. Man is a gregarious animal, and from his earliest days must have sought the companionship of communal life. Another objection to the current misconception that man is at least a half a million years old is found in the dynamics of human population. Professor Raymond Pearl of John Hopkins University has stated there have been roughly a 4.17 multiplication of human beings on this earth in 300 years. The Hebrew race began the days of Abraham about 3,865 years ago. The Jewish yearbook for 1922 gives the number of Jews uh, at this time as being 15,393,815. This means their numbers have, must have doubled roughly once every 161 years. According to Professor Peter Stone of Westmont College, doubling the population every 100 years since the flood would have resulted in a population 5,000 times greater than it is today. Therefore, if this earth has been here, like they say, with the present uh, population on it, beginning at about a million years ago, there would be a total of 70 million million persons near it today, which would be about 20 square feet for every person. 
if the earth is as old as some of them say it is, and man began his sojourn way back at the time of the finds in Africa, there would be now almost ten people per square feet of earth. Obviously, the earth has not been here that long, nor has man. All of this goes to show that man could not have been on this earth as long as these fellows say, according to the mathematical computerized machines. In short, you cannot be an evolutionist and be scientific. Now, you can be an evolutionist and profess to be a scientist. You can be an evolutionist and believe in that nonsense. But you cannot be a genuine scientist and be an evolutionist at the same time, because to be an evolutionist, you have to reject mathematics, history, and observable, demonstrable fact. And, of course, carbon-14 dating has nothing to do with it. There are a number of factors which are known to have influence on C-14 dating, such as the Earth's magnetism, the concentration of nitrogen in the atmosphere, and these may well have been variable in past ages. And it rate is significant that Professor W.F. Libby at the University of California, the father of carbon-14 dating, admitted that, quote, it is noteworthy that the earliest astronomical fix is at 4,000 years ago, and all older dates have errors, and these errors are more or less cumulative with time before 4,000 years ago. Dr. William Norris of the Argonne Laboratory has stated that, quote, the power function indicates clearly that in its area of application, the concept of biological half-times is completely fallacious and may result in gross errors, both actually and conceptually. The National Geographic Society has stated that, quote, analysis of iron and ancient bricks indicate the magnetism may have been declined, may have declined by about two-thirds over the past 2,000 years. Even now, the decrease may be affecting many people, from homeowners to historians. The Earth's magnetic field shielded from cosmic rays, the atomic nuclei that constantly flow in from space, and as magnetism declines in strength, many more rays will hit the Earth. Another effect would be in the field of radioactive carbon-14 dating of ancient objects. Carbon-14 results from the collision of cosmic rays with nitrogen atoms in the air. If the amount of carbon-14 is varied due to changes in the magnetic field and does not remain reliable constant for measuring age, many estimates may be in error. And since we know from the only scientific textbook in the world on the origins of man, the atmosphere has changed completely once in Genesis 1-2 and again in Genesis 8, we may be safe in throwing out all the carbon-14 experiments in the trash can with Darwin's garbage and considering what they truly are, intellectual poppycock. Now, I realize on these two broadcasts running a half an hour, we have had not time, we not have time to cover the subject of evolution completely. We've done what we can to quote the other side of the question and document the other side of the question, so you can see that a man is not necessarily intelligent because he believes in evolution, and a man is not necessarily non-scientific because he thinks it's a bunch of baloney with a capital B, which, of course, many of us know it to be. When all is said and done, all the facts are in, you have to face the stultifying fact that the Bible is the only accurate scientific textbook in the world because, after all, all the other scientific textbooks have to be rewritten every five years. What the Bible said in 1611 is just as good then as it is today and vice versa after 370 years. You never have to worry about the only scientific textbook in the world being accurate or getting out of date. It is always up to date and always accurate, and once in a while the so-called scientists catch up to it, and once in a while they don't. Whether they do, we make congratulations upon their good sense, 
where they don't, we may say, they are batting par for the course. They've never been right yet. Why should they suddenly get right now? So we accept the biblical account of Genesis 1, 2, and 3 as the literal scientific exact account of the origin of the universe and the origin of man, and we throw out the opposing so-called evidence as unworthy of a man with normal intelligence. And in these last hour of broadcast, these last two 30-minute broadcasts, we have documented why, and documented it from the work of the scientists themselves according to their own laws. On our next uh, work, we shall take up a discussion of the fall of man, a literal, literal historical thing that took place in an actual historical setting, which is the cause of man's present need for the new birth, and shows that without the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, the modern 20th century educator, lawyer, doctor, nuclear physicist, and scientist is heading for hell as swiftly and as straight as a greased ball bearing on a piece of glass. And human nature hasn't changed any since Cain knocked Abel's brains out. Our next discussion in anthropology will deal with the fall of man and uh, angelology and uh, homotheology the effect of sin on man, and the work of Satan and his angels to contribute to the damnation of fallen man. Until then, may the Lord bless you, and good day.